The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This is from 1 Peter 2, verses 1 through 10. So put away all malice and all deceit, and hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense." They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. If I haven't met you, uh, I've mentioned this before, and, and some of you helped me do this from time to time. I kind of refresh my uh, podcast repertoire because I, I just have a slew. I just love, even if I'm in the car for, you know, like 10, 15 minutes, I love just clipping off little bits here and there of a good podcast. And uh, one of the ones I, I listen to is called How I Built This. I don't know if you've listened to this one. It's, it's one that really um, goes into uh, kind of businesses and corporations. It could be not just like huge ones, but grassroots, small ones that build up. And it, t- and it takes uh, the founder or um, some of those who have uh, really been instrumental in building a certain company. It could be shoes, it could be houses, it could be anything. Uh, there was even one on Dude Perfect uh, one time, <laughs> which was great. Uh, and just talks about, like, how, how did they get to where they are? Did they have a dream? Did it just kind of happen? What, what, you know, what, what made this company what it is and uh, this industry what it is? In fact, it's interesting. Some of you may, uh, may know this. I mean, we, uh, we actually used to have an office not far from here at WeWork. Um, that's, you know, years ago before, you know, COVID happened. We all joked that it became we sick. But uh, we, we work over there. Um, and, it, you know, you may have heard of the podcast or there was a Netflix documentary or something like that. It was called We Crashed. So something like that. I mean, you know, if you enjoy that, that was an interesting one, too, because it really took a, a, the founder of this uh, huge industry and it showed how it rose and fell really hard. In particular, uh, you know, when the founder of WeWork, um, he was building it. Uh, it also wanted to build a school and amongst other things, we, we school, we learn and all these things and, and like just kind of went on and on. It gets a little dicey. Um, now you can see why we crashed. But, um, but you know, like it, it, when we come to 
the scripture and we come inside a church and we've been looking at the letters of Peter. Um, where Peter goes in this letter, you may have heard it, it's structural. And the question comes up, how is the church really built? How is the church built? And I think that's a really important question. And many of us ask that, especially if we've come to church and we come out of a background where maybe we're used to church or maybe we're kind of in a place of being cynical or burned by it. Maybe you're bored by the church. Maybe it's something you've just done so long or you come to once in a while. How is it built? Why is it different than anything else? What makes it different? It's interesting that Peter wrote this. Peter, who was, and maybe you recognize that name, <clears throat> one of the OG uh, apostles, disciples, that wrote these letters um, later on in the 60s AD after he, he was a major founder of the church. And he's writing to a group of people in Rome who are asking the question of what are they a part of? Because for them to identify actually as a Christian didn't mean you just, you know, had a lot of, you know, hard times. You actually suffered for being a part of this. And when Peter wrote the letter, as, as often as we can read the Bible and we think of it more of like, it's my Bible and me and my quiet time, this is actually more than just a, a you and me thing. It's an us thing. He's speaking directly to how the church is built because here's the thing. What makes the church so different is that it has gone through major problems and yet it never goes away. The church has gone through so many issues over the years and many of us in this room have issues or possibly will have issues if you haven't with the church itself. But what makes it stay? How does it remain? How is it something different than any other founder, corporation, industry that it doesn't just die? It doesn't just come and go. It doesn't just kind of jump up and it is here and it stays. And Peter wants us to know, and this is what I love about Peter, he's very practical. He takes theology and the way you live it out and puts it together really quickly. And if you're an engineer in this room, or if you're somebody who likes to put things into practice, this is going to be one of your favorite passages, because Peter really hits hard about what does it mean for us to be the building of the church, this metaphor, what does that mean? And he does it in two ways. He talks about being built up in Jesus as there's a stone and there's a building, pretty simple. There's a stone, major stone, and then there's a building built from that. And that's where he goes. I don't know if you've been in Nashville long. Maybe you've been in uh, a city where you really have enjoyed the architecture or those kind of things. But if you walk downtown, Nashville is a, a pretty historical city. Even this building itself um, has a lot of history to it. And if you go downtown, there are a number of buildings that if you see and they look kind of even old and probably are from the um, not just 20th century, we're talking like 19th century, uh, you walk around and see a number of buildings that have these interesting stones built into the side of them. One in particular in the, um, in the uh, U.S. Customs House that's on Broadway. 
It was built, it was actually supposed to be built right after the Civil War. It was supposed to be built in the 1850s. It ended up being built because of, you know, labor costs and those kind of things. But it was built in 1877. And if you go to the side, if you're walking down Broadway, you can see in the side of that building this giant stone. It looks kind of odd and out of place, but it just says 1877 on it. And that is what was considered somewhat of a cornerstone. That's what it's called. And actually, if you walk right out these doors and you go, if you happen to drop kids off or something like that, Fondren, this building, right next to it on that path, you'll see it says Fondren, 1950, right there. Now, it's a little smaller on the side, but those stones are in place to show us something, that there's something that is supposed to go out from that. And Peter picks up on this as he says in verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. There's a stone there. And where does this come from? Earlier in the Old Testament, there's so many conversations about the, how, is, how are the people of God made? And in Isaiah, when they're really kind of falling apart and they think that they're something, it talks about these kings and princes in Isaiah chapter 28. It says that the princes think that they can stand on their own against any foes. And then all of a sudden, the Lord puts this interesting verse in there. And he says, you can't. There's actually only one. Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. And what he was trying to get to them is to say, there is no way you can build security for your life and your world on your own. There's no way you can do it. In fact, the cornerstone, the whole point of it is that the key stone sets the line. In fact, masons in the ancient days, a little different than now where they have this, the block perfectly fine, they would actually dig through giant boulders and rocks and settings, and they would look for the right stone to set in place. And that stone had to hold a specific amount of weight. It had to be good enough to set where the lines of whatever building was being shaped could hold that and set the line and hold those lines. And it was the foundation stone. It was the thing that set the rest of the house on course. And what Peter's wanting us to know is that what the church is built on is the cornerstone of Jesus. And here's what's key about it. He's not just a stone, he's a living stone. And that is huge, because if you think about it, Jesus, the whole purpose of why we're even meeting today, why are we even in a building worshiping? It's because Jesus is actually not dead, but alive. He's different than any other founder, any other industry, any other idea. It's Jesus. Like it says in verse 4, as you come to him, a living stone. It would be so easy, and as, as many of us can, to think of the church as just a good idea. <laughs> it's a great idea. But is that all it is? Or is it a philosophy? Or is it, is it maybe a, just a good community gathering? Is it a way for us just to get to know each other? Is it something more than that? Does it kind of keep us out of trouble? <laughs> Does it give us, set us morals, right? Does it give us a good set of good way to live? Or does it have to be something more? It doesn't say as you come to morals, as you come to philosophies, as you come to ideas. It says as you come to him, 
the living stone. And that is enormous for the way that the church is built. Uh, yesterday, and I don't know if you watched any of it, um, the uh, coronation of King Charles uh, was going on. And that's always a I'm sure there were plenty of memes and those kind of things. And, um, <clears throat> and um, as you, it, you know, it's really interesting as you look, and I, we've all talked about the, and if you haven't, I'm, I'm really looking forward to reading some of these books on Queen Elizabeth and, and just the, the royal line is just fascinating. I think we're all so fascinated with it because it's just this family that has been there forever. And it's this bloodline. And, um, and, and, and now seeing it being passed on and passed on. And who's going to be passed on? And then, of course, Harry jumping out. Everybody even it has nothing to do with us as a country, really. And yet we're like, oh, my gosh, Harry is not there. Is he there? Is he smiling? Does he care? Is Charles happy? He looks horrible. You know, like we, we just, you know, we're all into it. And yet what's fascinating about it is that this whole line is being set of Who's next, who's next, who's next? And yet every time the, the royalty dies, where is that line going? It has to find the next one. It has to be set on a certain person's bloodline and where it works. But what's fascinating about the church is what if we were to understand the founder never died, he died but never died again. He rose from the grave, and the stone that is the cornerstone, the one that sets the course of the building, is not like anybody else. The reason that it's set that way is it doesn't dissolve. It, do, it doesn't work off quarterly revenue. It doesn't work off other sorts of ways that institutions and, and things work. It works on a living human being. And you know what's amazing is when Peter wrote this, and, and, and it may remember this in the Bible, about halfway through each of the Gospels, there's an account where Jesus asks the disciples, who do people say that I am? He says this in, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. There's one, one of the, the parallel accounts. It says, now, when Jesus came into the district, he asked, who do the people say that the Son of Man is, who, that I am? to his disciples. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And think about that. Those were huge biblical figures. Even if you're here and you're kind of like, I don't know if I know the Bible very well, maybe you've heard some of those names. John the Baptist, Elijah, these are massive biblical names. And yet these, all these people lived at one point and then died. And, and, and then it goes on to say, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, Peter, who wrote this letter, says to Jesus, you are Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says back, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, says his full name, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I shall build, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I think what is so incredible about that passage is when it says things like, and the gates of hell, the church will be built, and not just on Peter, but on, on this rock, meaning the rock, bedrock of the apostles' teachings from me, the good news, and it will, not even the gates of hell will prevail against it. And if you're sitting here like me, you're thinking, okay, 
I got to be honest, there are times when it feels like the church is going through awful things. Now notice, he, does, he doesn't say the gates of hell won't come against it. And that is true. The gates of hell do come against it. And there is the constant attack against the church. Constant. There are things that, that we naturally talk about, but what this is also talking about is there's a supernatural work against, that is work, trying to work against God's church. And if it is built on anything like Elijah or these wonderful names, the church cannot prevail. How does it prevail? It only prevails because of what it's built on. What is its cornerstone? And you know, it's amazing that the Greek language there of that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it is actually saying that the church isn't supposed to play this defense. It actually has a really good offense, really strong offense. Yesterday, I coached uh, my son's eight-year-old, seven- and eight-year-old's uh, team, uh, baseball team. And it's, it is the kind of team where um, the score at the end was like 16 to 12. And so, you know, I mean, they're just stepping up, they're kick, 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 kick. I mean, they're cranking out balls. We're like, oh my gosh. But, you know, the defense, they're like all running to the same base. We're like, no, 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 no. Stay at your base. There's one person at first. You know, like everybody, you have to kind of sort them out. But man, when they get those bats, I mean, they were crushing it. Run after run after run. Their offense was insane. But yet every ball came by. <laughs> it was like one of those things like they couldn't stop the ball at first, you know. But they just kept moving. The game just kept going forward. I mean, that is, the, that is the Greek understanding of what the church is doing. It is in an offensive posture. It is moving forward. And not even the gates of hell can stop it from its progress. And if that is put on my shoulders and on your shoulders or on someone else's in a foundation, it will not last. This is why it even says here is, you come to him, a living stone rejected by men. It says this a number of times. It says the stone in verse 7, that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. A stone of stumbling, a stone, a rock of offense. A stumble, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. That this rock and this cornerstone isn't just one that's just going to be beautiful and perfect, but that people rejected it. That Jesus himself as the cornerstone is rejected. And, and, and it again, is that idea of they not only found the stone and pulled it out, it's, that it's almost as if the, stone, the cornerstone was laid and a group of contractors came up and were looking at it and like, why'd you pick that? That's essentially what it means, what rejection means. They rejected that it was already set in place. And if you think about it, how was it rejected? Think about Jesus' ministry. They rejected his heritage. They rejected his authority. They rejected his view of the Sabbath, his healings, his discussion in the temple. They rejected him because he ate with tax collectors and sinners. They rejected him because he was on a cross. That he would even take it up. In fact, right after, Peter even says... 
You are the Christ, son of the living God. Jesus starts moving into talking about the cross. And do you know what Peter says? Are you crazy? Why would you do that? And it's such a strong rebuke that Jesus turns back to him and says, get behind me, Satan. And he has to say that because right then you realize any word against the stone not being rejected actually is not serving its purpose. That this cornerstone is to go against the gates of hell. And don't we want that and need that? Don't we want something that is going to address the realities of what comes against us in every day? That the gates of hell are coming against us all the time. And even in ways that we don't even acknowledge because a lot of times we're Westerners and we may come from a certain background theologically and we don't even want to acknowledge that there is not just natural evil that we encounter, but there is supernatural evil that is coming at us consistently. And if we put it on our own shoulders and any other foundation but Christ, it will not stand. There can only be one foundation that holds. I think the great theologian Maren Morris said it great. When she said, when the bones are good, the rest don't matter. Yes, I'm going to read it. I won't sing it, but I'll read it. Yes, the paint could peel, the glass could shatter. Let it break because you and I remain the same. When there ain't a crack in the foundation, baby, I know any storm we're facing will blow right over when we stay put. The house don't fall when the bones are good. Thank you, Marin. You're right. It all depends on that foundation. Trust me, we, we've just spent so much time looking at what is needed to build a foundation. In our neighborhood, as people are up doing homes all over again, the most time spent, the most money spent, the most important part of any house structure has to be put in what that foundation is or it will not stand. Has to be. You have to ask, what is the stone that the church is built on? And it's not just a you, it's us. Because he goes right from there because from the foundation in the cornerstone, so goes the rest of the house. That's exactly where he goes. He goes, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. See, it's not just the stone, but we ourselves are living stones. It's an organic place. And it's more than just the cheesy kind of like, here's the church, here are the people. You know, like we, we are the people that God has put together to build this structure that is his. As we come to him a living stone, there's no freelance Christians in the church. It doesn't work that way, even when we want to. And I hope, I hope for many of you that that this drives home a point of wherever you are, be it bored, burned, cynical, just coming in the doors of a church, that it encourages you that it is not, thankfully, not all about us, but yes, it equips us to be all about it. That you are a part of this. That you own the church. You are in it. 
And I need to say, I did a golf tournament some time ago, and I remember getting in the golf cart with this guy, and he wanted to ride with, I don't know if he wanted to ride with a pastor or did not. Always an interesting thing. And, you know, it's one of those things like, okay, I got to watch what I say around him, watch what I, when we, you need to understand, we as much still live in that idea that this guy up here is what this is talking about. But what this is actually saying is that we all have equal ownership as living stones to this church. That we're all a part of this building. We're built up in it. And it gives us real, Peter drives home real practical things that we need to understand. Notice, he says that you are a spiritual house. You are a spiritual house. You know what he's saying? He's getting at the fact that you are a temple where God dwells. You are the new temple where God himself decides to dwell. And I think that is so incredible. To think about that God would place himself anywhere. And yet he says, I'm going to dwell with my people, with the (laughs) y'all. To make up the church. In their time, temples were everywhere. There'd be a number of things. For the Jewish readers of 1 Peter, they would immediately think of the temple. That this is the place where God meets man. The temple, Jewish temple, God meets man. There has to be some sort of a sacrifice. There has to be some sort of way of being with God. And then, of course, in Rome, there were all sorts of other temples to gods and things that everybody knew, how do you meet with this God? But how God decides to build his new temple is through you, through living stones. Chosen and precious are not just Jesus, but now you. John chapter 4, Jesus meets a woman at a well. And she's a Samaritan woman. And, and, And John highlights the fact that she seriously is what most would consider an outcast. As a woman, as a Samaritan, as even someone who in the passage as it unfolds, her life seems to be one that would be that. And as Jesus encounters her, they begin to have a conversation about worship. And the worship, not just in terms of like, what do you worship, like music. We typically, when we say worship, we mean music. What he means is, where do you really meet with God? How do you know him? And she says, well, we know that you, uh, you Jews worship over here on this mountain, and we worship here on this mountain. Jesus goes, that's true, but the Lord is seeking worshipers to worship him in spirit and truth. And they will neither worship on that mountain or this mountain, but he's seeking them now. And it so profoundly hits her that Jesus is saying that God pursues and chooses her. Someone who would not think that she would be chosen. Someone who would think over and over, why would I be a part of this? Why would I be wanted by God? This is what God is doing for us. It's not that he says, I just love you and I want you to come to me. He actually decides, I want to dwell in you. I want you to know you make up the church You are its architecture. You are its design. 
And no matter what it looks like, and we, and we, we typically think of it in so many weird ways that it, that it doesn't look like the right design. <laughs> Maybe you've built a part of your house and you can look at your house and you go, okay, that light fixture is not what I ordered. That plug is not supposed to be there. This room is totally out of whack. There's no door. <laughs> the framing doesn't work. And yet God knows exactly what he's building. Uh, there is a, a church in... Italy, years ago, years and years and years ago, I was able to go visit uh, in Venice, Italy. I don't know if you've been to Venice, a beautiful place, and uh, oftentimes when you see Venice on movies or TV or things like that, what you see is typically the canals, or you see what's called the Piazza San Marco, which is this giant kind of open space, and on that is the church of San Marco, St. Mark. And if you go into that church, and if you even walk on the ground, you know, it feels a little bit uneven <clears throat> because of, you know, Venice and the water and the, the way it's built. If you start looking around, you notice odd things. Like, you'll see parts that, like, if you look in a building like this, most things look symmetrical, or, or you'll see things that are like, why is that there? And where did that come from? Like, it, it just looks like somebody took, like, you know, when somebody just took random Legos and built just something, it just kind of looks like that. And yet, this is the place of worship. And, and historically, come to find out, because of where it is and, and, and where it was highly trafficked, it became a place where they built the church using all sorts of goods that would just come through, sometimes even stolen goods that they just took and began to build this place of worship in order for it to be what it is. And yet, it has such a rich beauty to it, even with what it's out of place. And, and Peter, right before this passage, said, we are a ransom people. We have been bought back. In some ways, we've been stolen back from the evil and, and whatever, both internally and externally around us. To make up maybe sometimes a church that we look around and go, why is that person here? Or maybe why am I here? Or I can't believe I made it here. And yet God has said, you are my chosen precious living stones that make up the whole of this church. He builds it this way. This is his beauty, his wisdom. And remember, it's not you that's the cornerstone. It's not me. And yet he decides from this perfect line that can hold every weight that he is going to build us up into it. He's going to make us from that. He says even a holy, to be a, a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, that we are the ones now that show the access to God. It's interesting. When it says holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, it's not saying that we're supposed to offer sacrifices now. It's actually saying we have access now. You have access to God. And I'll tell you, if you come to confession often and you're like, how do I really connect to him? The Lord is saying through Jesus, you have access and you actually show that access to everyone around you. Your calling now is to 
display access to God. Through praise, through grace, through giving, through sharing resources, through showing who you are as God's chosen living stones. And what he finishes this with when he says in verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you are a new people. It's a new people before God. Exodus chapter 19 is where this is all drawn from. It's taken from a chapter where Israel was chosen, told that they were a people. And to hear this, think about this for a moment, but you are a chosen race. This was being said to people that felt and heard and didn't think their race was chosen at all. And for many of us, we may not have ever experienced that, but there are people that have and continue to now. And sometimes we think we are deserving to be chosen based on that. But God is the one who set those bounds. That chosen race is no longer determined by what foundation we would put there, but by His. We have no connection to a, a first century carpenter Jew. And yet He has taken a bunch of Gentiles and built this spiritual house out of us to display His power. A royal priesthood that represents the king. That's what it's to be. That represents the king himself. It's honestly showing us where real, and this is pushing into their boundaries. Where does real nationalism push? Where does it begin? It begins first by making sense of what house are we first a part of? And then making sense of it as we go along. That we were once not a people, once received no mercy, but now we are a people. That's what this table is for. This table is a table and a picture of something that I did not build. (laughs) I didn't set this table. Jesus did. Christ Pres didn't set this. Our host team didn't set this. This This is actually built by him. And it actually shows exactly what that last verse was. That once we were not a people, but now we are a people. When you come to this table, you taste what you weren't. And you also recognize what you are now. That God has made you his. One of my favorite things to say to my kids, and I don't know if they get it anymore because they're getting a lot older when they were little. When they are really little. I'd say things like, boys, why, why does daddy love you? You know why I love you today? Because you hit a home run, because you did well in school. No, I love you because you're mine. I love you because you're mine. And I don't say that because I'm some great dad. The only reason I I can say something like that is because it's been told to me by my great father in heaven. And you get mercy and you are a people because he's made you that. And you know what's interesting? When you come forward in a minute and you will rub shoulders with people as you're taking communion, you'll feel the spiritual house that you are a part of, that you are built, that when you leave here, you show the access to God by your offering 
and lips and life of spiritual sacrifice to him. This is the cornerstone that sets the rest of the church. Amen? Amen. Let's stand together.